So today is All Saints Day. We usually have a Sunday that we celebrate kind of All Saints Sunday, but this is actually All Saints Day. So it actually is today. It doesn't always fall on a Sunday. Um, it's one of those times in the church year when we perform baptisms. Uh, it's going to make all the more sense when we get into the Revelations passage in uh, just a moment. Um, it's a really popular passage for All Saints Day, the Revelations, that, the Revelation that Jenny just read. Also for funerals. Uh, the purpose of All Saints Day, some of you might wonder, is to recall sort of our family history, our family story in Christianity. Um, we remember the faithful who have gone before us, uh, those who followed Jesus. We share those stories. Now, some come from Scripture. Uh, some come from later in history. We can read about the saints there. Uh, others, I hope you have personal saints in your lives, too, that have helped you uh, follow in the way of the cross, discipled you in the faith. Uh, we can say these are heroes of the faith in a sense. Um, but um, the better way, I would say, to think of them is to call them, per today, saints instead of heroes. I want to explain a little bit about that. It's pretty cool because when Paul writes most of his epistles, he writes to the saints living in such and such place. So his salutations are to the saints in Philippi, to the saints living in Colossae, to the saints living in Ephesus, to the saints in Rome, to the saints living in Corinth. And he uses the word saints pretty synonymously sometimes with just Christians or believers. So it was not some special title reserved for like the super Christians. That's not what it was about. Saints were the ordinary devoted followers of Jesus. Those are the saints. You are the saints. I am the saints. Like we make that up. So there wasn't, <clears throat> pardon me, there wasn't any bifurcation of like there's the super Christians, the saints over here, and then there's the rest of us, sort of those nominal Christians who eh, they don't really matter too much. They don't do anything really spectacular. No miracles, none of that stuff. Paul wrote to the saints or to those called to be saints. And every time he mentions them, it is almost always in the plural. Isn't that fascinating? The saints, plural, wasn't just this individual person. He rarely singles someone out in that way. They were always just a faithful community of people who were following Jesus. Their lives revolved around his gospel. Uh, our gospel passage you just heard from Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, uh, that's a fine example of some saintly virtues, right? Uh, all of which orbit around dependence on the Lord. If you listen carefully to that list, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are pure in heart, peacemakers, the persecuted, so on and so forth. That's a very aspirational picture of what we're called to be as saints. So one of the saints we encountered today is John the Apostle, as in John, the disciple of Jesus. He is the author of the book of Revelation. I've heard him called John the Revelator. I think that's pretty fair. Sometimes they call the book of Revelation the Apocalypse or the Apocalypse of John. Um, John wrote this at a time when persecution from Rome was at a very, very high pitch. It was pretty harsh, pretty severe under Domitian, late first century. So he wrote Revelation. He was in exile. He was in exile on a little island called Patmos, a very inhospitable little island uh, near Ephesus. This is where Rome would take the troublemakers and rabble-rousers and they would send them to Patmos. Well, that's where John is. That's where he's writing from, and he's in exile. And in his exile, John received a series of visions from Jesus. Um, he's told to write these down in words, these visions. No small task. That's not easy. Uh, and to send it out to the churches in uh, Asia Minor. And he does that. 
out of obedience. That's the book of Revelation. That's what we have. Uh, the last one in our canon. Now, it goes without saying, who here has read through Revelation? Who here has read through Revelation and found it a, a rather easy book to make it through? Me neither. Uh-huh. Yeah. So to our 21st century eyes and ears, there's this tidal wave of these allusions and Old Testament images that are bizarre and foreign and unsettling. I mean, it is a trippy book. Trippy book. It's that apocalyptic, prophetic genre. Uh, that means you have to read it with a, a certain set of lenses. Uh, and, you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing some pretty skewed and rather anachronistic interpretations of revelations, right? There's, there's always seems to be that sort of unnatural and unbalanced fascination with the end times. That's always existed in the church. But may I suggest to John's original audience, it was not nearly as bizarre to them. It just wasn't. Uh, these things would have been far easier to understand. So part of what I try to do is help us bridge the gap between John's world and our world. So we'll be in Revelation 7, 9 through 17. I would advise you to get your Bible out and follow along with me. Um, but to, we need to kind of uh, back into this passage by starting with Revelation 6. Some of us will be really familiar. I won't be able to explain it all, but I just want to orient us so that we have a starting point. So Revelation 6, John series sees a vision. Let's remember that. Seeing a vision um, of these first of six seals that hold these scrolls, right? So the seal is broken. A scroll is opened up. There's these six seals that are broken. Six scrolls, uh, symbolic of this word of judgment coming from the Lord. Now, after the sixth one is opened, creation sort of, I don't say revolts, but it just responds by quaking and shuddering. And uh, it is very apocalyptic. It's kind of like everything's sort of coming apart at the seams. And humanity sort of runs and hides, given all that's happening. And the breaking of these seals brings about, as you can imagine, it brings about suffering. There's destruction. There's a tremendous sense of persecution and overwhelm that comes about. Judgment and enacted justice. And in the midst of the tumult, and here's where I want to focus, there is a question that comes about in uh, Revelation 6, 17. This question, who's able to stand? So amidst all this, uh, all this, just this tidal wave of suffering who's able to stand who can stand amidst this revelation 7 takes that question head on and it's answered in uh, verses 3 and 4 chapter 7 those who've been sealed by god so who can stand those who've been sealed by god the connection as we read on as the imagery plays out in our passage who are the sealed what does that mean those who are baptized that's what that language is drawing upon Baptism is a, and it's why we do it on this day typically, baptism is a sign of God's devotion to us. Baptism is a sign of a seal of God's promise to us. Uh, if you grew up like I did, I associated baptism as more about like what I do than about what God is doing, right? I follow Jesus. I'm going to get baptized. Hey, I'm going to commit my life to the Lord. I'm going to be baptized. While that is true, it is far more about what God is promising to us and what God is sealing in us. So this, those who have been sealed by God, who can stand? Those who have been sealed, it's talking about um, those who have been baptized in the sense of set apart for God. It's always about more about what God does for us and uh, what he brings to the table than what we do. That seems to always be true with the sacraments, don't you think? 
So baptism in the early church, and for us as Anglicans, it marks the entrance into the covenant family of God. So who are able to stand? The sealed ones, the baptized ones, those who belong to the Lord, those who've been sealed, saved, uh, marked by his loved. Again, baptism is God's good pledge to us, his seal. And in the first few verses of Revelation 7, 1 through 8, what we see is a picture of this is the sealing of the saints. Some people call it, this is the church militant. And that's just a fancy way of saying, these are the saints, you and I, uh, the church of Jesus, as seen from an earthly perspective. The church militant. All 144,000 of us, okay, careful, careful. We're not going to get into numerology there. This is not some secret cipher. Uh, that's not the right way to read it. Uh, the scriptures often do use numbers symbolically. Um, that would be the case here. This is John's, this 144,000 that he's talking about in the early part of Revelation 7. It's just a way of saying, a theological way of saying, this is an incalculable number of believers, and they're from all over the world, everywhere. And it signifies completion, that not one is lost, that everyone whom God has called to himself uh, are not, no one's missing. Everyone's present and accounted for. Okay, now... We're ready to get into Revelation 7, 9 through 17. So again, we've seen a picture prior to this of the church militant, the church from a very earthly view. This is what it looks like uh, on this side of heaven, not on the other side of the Jordan. We're going to switch gears, get to Revelation 7, 9 through 17. This is the saints, what they look like, saint, uh, the saints sealed and saved by God. And we're going to see this is more of like the heavenly view, okay? Different sort of perspective. It is glorious. It's magnificent. Um, you guys all know these verses. Behold, I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, ro- white robes, excuse me, uh, with palm branches in hand, crying out and saying, a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a magnificent picture. Uh, beautiful. This is a picture of what we call the church triumphant. Okay, church militant, earthly, church triumphant. This is what's going on in the heavenlies, which we join in when we worship. I love that. This is the body of Jesus in heaven. The saints who crossed over, they've made it to the other side of the Jordan. They're no longer earthbound. They're in their heavenly dwelling. They're free from suffering and anxiety and sorrow. It's a picture of what uh, we will look like, what we should look like, and how God sees us. It's very cool. This is the fully redeemed, glorified version of what God intends us to be. Okay? And that's what it looks like in those first few verses. I looked, behold, the great multitude, every nation. You guys know this. It's a very familiar passage. All tribes and people standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in hand. This is the people of God gathered right here. The church all gathered around the throne of God and the Lamb who is, we know, Jesus. All those who've gone before us. Every skin color is present. Every language is present. Every human culture is present. This is the truest and the most accurate picture of the church. Every single human culture is gathered around that banquet table. It's in technicolor and it's glorious. So this is why I pause and go, Lord, if we could just see that, just that verse that one verse in Technicolor, what would that be like? How would that impact us to see 
all those different people gathered around your table and your throne. In some ways, it's the fulfillment of Pentecost. Pentecost is a really great foretaste of that. This is like the complete fulfillment of that. All, every skin color, every language, every culture, it's in technicolor, and it is glorious. It's beautiful. The saints are all clothed in white. There's plenty of meaning there, for sure. Uh, Certainly, Jesus having clothed us in his righteousness, that's how we're all adorned. Uh, There's no blemish. There's no stain. Here's part of the baptismal language. We've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Okay? It's a sign of our justification. It's a mark of purity. Uh, Our sin just doesn't define us anymore. So think to the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, The son comes back. the, The dad gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals. This isn't just about clothing, though he probably needed clothing after tending pigs, but it wasn't about that. All this clothing, all these robes show belonging in the household of God. It shows, uh, this is a sign of restoration. This is a sign of status, saying you belong in this family. That's what those white robes are about because you've been washed clean in the waters of baptism by the blood of Christ, brought into the covenant family. And guess what we're doing? They and we, waving palm branches in hand, signs of victory, okay? When you win a battle, you, you wave the palm branches. That's what we do it on uh, Palm Sunday, right? You might recall that. And the saints, all of them, are crying out at the top of their lungs, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the saints in unison. This must have been deafening. John says it's loud. Okay, this might make a rock concert look pretty tame. Who knows? And this is our story, right? Salvation belongs to our God. Christ's victory, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it becomes ours. And this is just a picture of what that looks like, that reality. So if you take 9 and 10, put them together, verses 9 and 10, this is what Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem should have looked like. The palm branches, the, the shouts of Hosanna, which means God save. That's the core of our gospel. These are all the saints and the church triumphant in the new Jerusalem in heaven. It's very powerful, okay? That's just 9 and 10. No surprise, the heavenlies respond in kind. This is verses 11 and 12. So uh, you get this picture of the angels and and the elders and the rather bizarre four creatures, which you read about earlier in Revelation. They'll affirm what the saints have just said. Uh, In other words, it's like the entire heavenly host. Everything the saints have proclaimed, they affirm and they fall down and they worship around the throne of God. And this is what they say. Amen. First thing, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And they end it again with amen, which is a way of saying, so be it, or may it be so. So great rejoicing in heaven. This is eternal. It's ongoing. It is a symphony that just keeps rolling. And we participate in the symphony every Sunday. That's what we're doing right now, but may not feel like it. God elevates us into his presence every single Sunday, into the heavenly realms in worship. We're joining with the communion of saints right now and doing what we're doing. We have a part to play. You have a part to play. There's divine drama that's going on right now, and we're enacting it. We're being part of it. The heavenly hosts proclaim, uh, it's really quite powerful, 
these seven attributes to the Lord. And it's kind of hard to render it well in English, but it, it would go something like this. There's a definite article there. It has a the in front of it. And here, here's what, let, me, let me kind of tease it out for you. Should read this way. Amen. The blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power, and the might belong to God forever and ever. That puts a different twist on it. These are things that are innately God's. <laughs> He's worthy to be praised. And he, no one else possesses these things. They belong to him. So this is a picture of uh, his sovereignty that's unique and it's undeniable. And it's just his glory. This is God. To him be the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the blessing, the honor, the power, everything. These belong to the Lord. And there's an amen sandwich there uh, at the beginning and the end just to reiterate it. So it's powerful. The heavenly hosts join in with what the saints affirm. There's a little exchange in 13 and 14 between John and one of the elders. It's kind of like if you're watching a movie, this goes to a bit of a close-up between two people. Uh, there's a little Q&A that goes back and forth. One of the elders says, uh, who are these clothed in white? Where do they come from? Uh, John says, well, sir, you know. And he says, these are those who are coming out, pay attention, present tense of the great tribulation. These are those that are coming out, uh, present tense of the great tribulation. It talks about washing their uh, robes in the blood of the lamb and being white and all that. Now, again, I hear tribulation. Who here has heard some funky theology about tribulation? Yep. Okay. I'll just wait till every hand goes up. <laughs> yeah. We've all probably heard some funky and questionable theology about the end times and rapture theology. Can I gently suggest uh, that a lot, a lot of it is just bad theology, and it's a rather recent innovation in the life of the church. So let me just invite you to kind of put that aside over here, and let's, let's think about this a little bit. Uh, let's remember John's original audience here, okay, who he's writing to. These are the saints living in Asia Minor, and they're under Roman persecution, and it's really thick, and it's at a high pitch, very harsh and severe. The context for Revelation when it was written, was oppression and suffering, okay? Oppression and suffering. John's own exile is an example of that. So he is writing. Have you ever thought of this about Revelation? Anyone ever taught you this? Revelation is written to, to give you hope. Revelation is a hopeful book intended to remind you of who the author, capital A, of the story is. So there's current strife going on for John's audience that he's writing to. There are saints that are being martyred for their faith. Okay? There are those that are joining this strong of the faithful, which John is seeing in his visions. Christians are being marginalized because they won't play ball with the Roman Empire. All over the place. So first century Christians. That's their great tribulation. That is what they are in the midst of. So John is offering hope. Revelation is meant to give us hope. Remember who is on the throne. Remember who reigns. God Almighty. Now, we also, did you know that we do live in the end times? That is true. Uh, it's just that era began around the time Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came. So we've been in the end times for quite a long time. We're part of that too. So we are in the end times. The church and all our saints have been living in the great tribulation ever since then. So the saints throughout the ages have experienced trials at great tribulation. Do you know this? And at some point, right, we leave the earthly life. 
all the sufferings and hardships, and we join that heavenly host. That's what happens. When we cross over, we're leaving the great tribulation and brokenness of the world ourselves, and we enter into our eternal rest, our eternal home. We depart this veil of tears, and we arrive in what's been called a far better country. That's understanding it, but amen. So this is about us too, right? We, we do live in the end times, the same as John's audience did back in the first century. We're coming out of the great tribulation as we leave this earth. We're going to be clad in white, right? Saved by the purifying blood of Jesus. Baptismal imagery, there it is. As the old hymns say, that paradox, we've been whitened in the blood, right? That's us. That's us. So the great tribulation... <laughs> We've been living in that for a little while, haven't we, folks? Indeed, we have. Last few verses, 15 to 17. I call this the divine sigh. This is the divine sigh of our souls, and I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, there before the throne of God, they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of ever-living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Now, that's a powerful passage. In the worship of our God, we find shelter. That's the divine sign. In the worship of God, we find shelter. Now, I find this more than a little poignant when you're experiencing suffering and persecution to hear this word, that earthly exile, and you're aching for your heavenly home. So we can't miss this part. Some people sort of gloss over this. Don't, let's not miss it. Therefore, they, the saints, are before the throne of God, and they have unfettered direct access to God. So heaven and earth are reunited, and in that they are made new. And the saints dwell with God. And the word here is so beautiful. It is so powerful because it's like a it's like a tabernacle. It's a bit like this roof over our heads, except this is not probably the best example. But um, you need to think of it like a tabernacle. Uh, the shelter of God's presence is literally a tabernacle of shalom making all things right, that covers and envelops the saints like some uh, great canopy, like uh, some divine firmament of just shelter. Uh, We see something really similar in Ezekiel 37. There's a strong tabernacle image. Very, very powerful. Get to verse 16, and and it kind of plays it out even more, this picture of the sheltering tabernacle of Shalom, that all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. It's hard to even describe because this is something we've only experienced in moments, in tastes. This this kind of uh, shelter and the meeting of our desires. Um, But in 16, it paints a picture of God meeting our needs, our deepest desires, and he uses things like hunger and thirst and shelter, basic human needs to sort of paint a picture. Now, if you're first century folk, you're people of subsistence, right? Uh, you don't know where food's coming from three days from now. You don't know if you have enough water for the next three days. It is a day-to-day thing. What an amazing promise to say you will thirst no more. You will hunger no more. You will have shelter and safety. Uh, the Middle Eastern heat is pretty scorching. 
So for us, we might think about it, oh yeah, that's where I go out and I get a tan, I do this and that. That was not the case for them. These promises are too good to be true. And it, and it is too good to be true. It's fulfilled Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah and others. It's the call to return home from exile. God's people, you're not going to hunger, you're not going to thirst on this journey through the wilderness. And the, the scorching wind and the sun, they're not going to touch you anymore. There's no more struggle. <laughs> you're home. Now, I just want to reiterate, we have never known safety or security like this. And if we have, we've known it for probably a millisecond. This is something we can just scarcely grasp. This is the eternal lives of the saints, and they're marked by this sense of worship and praise and rest and safety and just utter satisfaction, wanting nothing, desiring nothing. I mean, this is just unparalleled. Can you imagine that? You don't have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about clothes. You don't have to worry about making a living. You don't have to worry about shelter. You don't have to worry about anything. God has handled that. It's taken care of. That's that big canopy of shalom that he places over us, that shelter. It's really powerful. And apparently, we're pretty active when we get there with communion, with God, with each other. There's, we're serving, we're worshiping night and day eternally. I don't know how people think heaven's going to be boring, man. Uh, no. Uh, it is just beautiful, and it's something we only glimpse right? This side of heaven. And the reason for it all is the last verse. For the lamb, who we know is Jesus, is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd, guiding them to springs of living water. Psalm 23, anyone? Hear the echo there? He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There's Isaiah 25. This lamb, who we know is Jesus, will be our good shepherd. Fun little role reversal there. But now we will fully know him even as we're fully known. So there's, again, you must see there's this direct unfettered access to God and all of who he is. And there we are with each other doing that. This is the church triumphant who all of us saints are made to be now and for eternity. So certainly this is the saints that have gone before us. And that's also you and I right now, what we're joining in on. Now, I don't know about you, I was never, if I was taught Revelation at all growing up, and I don't know that I was, it's always something, right? It's either the, the drag strip out front or the geese or the exercisers out back. Jeez. Anyway. I was never taught that Revelation was a hopeful book. That's a message of hope. I still think it is intended to give us hope for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was written in the midst of tremendous suffering and oppression. Our brother John would remind us of the bigger picture. Who's really in charge? Who's really reigning over the earth? He gives us hope in the midst of tribulation and trouble. And that hope has a name. His name is Jesus. So two things to close. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Well, we've seen that the saints who came before us were able to stand. You and I are able to stand, right? All the saints, past and present, able to stand. 
Uh, I love that uh, this, this line finds its way in many of our liturgies, uh, baptismal, confirmation, uh, other places. Uh, one of the vows, you answer this way. I will the Lord being my helper, right? Okay, I will. Who's able to stand? I will, the Lord being my helper. Who's able to stand? We will, the Lord being our helper. With God's help, we are able to stand. This is the perseverance of the saints. The great cloud of witnesses. If we put our hope in the right place. So take heart. We will stand. God being our helper. So who's able to stand? You and I. God being our help. How are we able to stand? Well, let's look at this passage and not miss the forest for the trees. Worship. (laughs) How are we able to stand? By doing this right here. That is the picture of what's happening in this passage beginning to end is worship with Jesus at the center of it all. Right here, plumb line. Every Sunday we gather and we assert that there is someone who's strong and eternal and true, bigger than any pandemic, Bigger than any upcoming election we're worried about. Bigger than any tribulation we might encounter. How are we able to stand? We worship the living God. We worship Jesus. What's the line? Our God reigns. I think we have a song that sings that over and over. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. That is the drum that we bang alongside John and alongside all the saints every Sunday when we worship the Lord. That's our plumb line. That is our anchor. So we're able to stand with God being our helper. And we're able to do it by worshiping the Lord and coming together and meeting together at the foot of the cross every Sunday.